0: Welcome back to another Beach Cop Detectives interview with the writers, cast, and crew of Terriers. This time out, it's our exit interview with Ted Griffin, executive producer, writer, and co-creator of Terriers. In this interview, we talk about the second half of the season, where the guys might have gone in the future, the importance of Ocean Beach, and a lot of other things. So sit back and enjoy this interview with Ted Griffin, co-creator of Terriers. I am talking to Ted Griffin, co-creator of Terriers, and this is our exit interview. Uh,
1: great talk to you, Randy. Thank you for all you've done uh, podcasting the show so far. However, final judgment awaits.
0: <laughs> That's why I haven't heard the last couple episodes, so it's possible I might just, just totally blow the landing.
1: Yeah, you might torpedo this thing.
0: <laughs> yep. <laughs> so – I'd like to talk a little bit more about your sense of uh, Ocean Beach in San Diego. Can you Were there particular favorite locations you had or anything where locations uh, sort of sparked a story?
1: I mean, one of the, the odd things about this was because the writer's room was up in L.A. There, it was sort of like two units of an army. There was the, the front line, which was shooting down in Ocean Beach. And then there was uh, – if I'd been in the military, I'd know the terms here. <laughs> uh, but but then, then we were making decisions in L.A. And But when uh, I tried to get down there – once a week or once every couple of weeks at the beginning, just to say hello and you know tour the troops and sort of get a vibe of the place because I didn't know San Diego or Ocean Beach well. San Diego I only knew growing up as the Hotel Del Coronado from watching Some Like It Hot and from the occasional family vacation. But Ocean Beach I remember fondly because it got a real sense that probably half its residents really didn't want us there. It was sort of like yeah go back to go back to Hollywood, even though probably most of <laughs> The people there were native San Diegoans, but there was sort of a resentment of "We don't want your Starbucks. We don't want." <laughs> <laughs> like they were, they were keeping everything out, and so we were foreign invaders, which I, I think hopefully informed the back half of the show, especially the is it the state senator or councilman who says, "I, I want to keep this city just the way it is, lousy." Yeah, yeah, because I you. you Recognize that sort of protectionist. We like the way things are, and please don't improve our our neighborhood. So that you can kind of get affectionate for a joint like that that wants to freeze time in a way. The diner we shot at, well, the name is escaping me, but I'm Facebook friends with Ted, who runs it. They were very accommodating, which is tough when you're doing a TV show and you have to go back every once in a while to a location because they can start getting tired of you and not want you back for lots of good reasons. Think about having a house guest come back every other week. You get pretty exhausted of them, too. But these people were very nice because if they had said no, we would have had to We got a, a new stomping ground for Britain and Hank pretty fast.
0: So. Let's talk about Laura Ross because she's introduced kind of late in the series, and she's introduced in an episode written by you and your brother, and directed by you, and she makes kind of a huge impact in the show in her late appearance.
1: Yeah, she was an invention of my brothers, uh, who I think has sole credit on that. I mean, one one thing about television, uh, from my limited experience on this show, is on a lot of episodes. There's something maybe from everybody who's in that room. So any any uh, anyone with a producer credit or writing credit, not just the staff writers, but producers like Fief and Tim and Sean and and others. At some point, everybody's in the room on every one of these episodes. So it's really hard to look back and say who did what and which. But my recollection is is that Laura Ross was an invention of Nick's because we knew we were going in to do sort of a like the wedding episode. Uh, few weeks out because we were a little bit under the gun by that point when we get closer to the end of the series where there's less time between finishing the script and going to production and because we're, we're trying to stay ahead of the moving train i'm gonna mix metaphors crazily tonight <laughs> and so he came up with it and i don't quite recall what the inspiration was something almost suggests this is a, a, a strange reference if you don't know it a movie called the parallax view mm-hmm. with Beatty, and there's a um, a character played by Paul Apprentice, who's a reporter, who's sort of to something, who then gets sort of dies mysteriously. I, I don't know. Uh, like looking back into the movies we were talking about, cause, simply because that's a paranoid political thriller of the '70s, which were which was always sort of in the ether when we were looking at uh, the grand plot of terriers, of the uh, conspiracy plot of terriers. That was one of the movies I think that we chatted about a little bit. I always feel like I give you about a seven-minute answer to what really should be a 20-second answer.
0: No, no, I count on those seven-minute answers. I'm totally down with seven-minute answers. Otherwise, it assumes my questions are better, and that's no good. So I I, I like the long answers.
1: Uh, One other thing about Laura Ross is also we felt at that point in the show it was important to sort of bring up a a new major female character because in a way Gretchen is married – and so, in a way, no longer, in dramatic terms, viable to Hank. And also because we knew that Katie and, and Britt were breaking up, that we needed a female in the mix. And also somebody to sort of, I guess, just even play. Because Laura's not a love interest for Hank, but there's just a, it's a non-love-love interest in a way.
0: There's there's a chemistry in us of it might have gone that place, but they're not in the place where they can be romantically involved at this point. They're both focused on other things.
1: Yeah. And it's also one of those things about movies, which is always a little bullshit, is when your lives are in danger and you're trying to figure out what the hell is happening in your town, it's really a tough moment to fuck for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, movies take the time out for it, but we just sort of thought, I'm not sure if these people would say, you know what, hey, let's uh, let's go get a cocktail. Well, especially Hank. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I had a question about Gretchen. There are a couple episodes that make reference to her work. Uh, she mentioned the city council thing. Do you guys have do you have a sense of what her job was
1: going into it at the top? I think we left it fairly loosey goosey so that we could plug it in when we needed to, which was what we did. Okay, there's there's some things I've learned about TV of like okay, we could introduce this character now, but if we if we see this person for like two lines, we're only going to cast somebody who's going to take a role that's two lines long. So if we need somebody significant later. I mean, take, for example, Jason. Okay, so, for instance, if we had introduced Jason, uh, the fiancé, in an earlier episode, and he's just, like, across the street waving at Gretchen's, uh, we can't bring in a, a a better actor later on to play him because we just established him. So you kind of hide some things so that when it, you know if you're going to make a meal of it, you can really make a meal of it later if that makes
0: sense that makes a lot of sense i mean that's kind of the nature of terrorism. you guys were able to do things toward the end that all came together because you hadn't established certain things about you know where the evidence was or what had happened to mickey's daughter that kind of thing that you were able to pick up loose threads yeah so you were the only guy as as far as i know besides adam arkin gonna direct two episodes of the show
1: is that right yes and both happened by accident i can't remember who was supposed to direct Adam Markin's second episode, but somebody fell out. I have suspicion who it is, but I don't want to name but it. But it was sort of last minute and Adam had done such a great job not only directing his first episode, but we also sort of threw him in the deep end because when he started prep of his show, we really didn't have a completed script and he was very calm and kind of went with it. And so he was <laughs> a terrible term, user friendly. And because he saved our asses on that and, and just kind of going with the flow when this slot opened up, it just seemed like, Oh, like this guy's uh, right here. Everybody loves him. Let's do, uh, do it again. And then kind of the equivalent happened. We had another director lined up for the finale and he got a pilot to go direct, which is financially much more attractive. And we were way behind on the script and, so when he started to waffle, I said uh, – I, I still wanted to go back and direct another one that I said, go, 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 <laughs> and then regretted <laughs> saying that because <clears throat> it became the hardest I've ever worked for three weeks because we were riding until three in the morning and then getting up at six to go scout or shoot or whatever. Fun times.
0: You talked about the long hours and everything. Can you talk a little about what was what was fun about it, what was terrible about it?
1: Go back to the metaphor of an army. When one episode is in production, there's another episode which is in pre-production. So you have next week's director out on location scouts and figuring things out, and usually with a, a production designer available to the director, but the DP is not. So you're figuring a bunch of things out, but you're not, not like with a movie where sort of Everybody shows up for prep, and then they go into production, and you're kind of, as a director, you're an advanced man, and then you show up, and you kind of know what's going gone, but a lot of people are new to it. So it's it's a lot more see your pants, which is scary and fun, and also is creatively challenging in a best way, and you really have far fewer options, and you have to make the best of that, as opposed to, let's say, some film directors who say, well, I really wanted the clouds coming in from the east, so let's wait on a show it's like all right here's what we got it's raining all right this scene takes place in the rain <laughs> like let's or let's let's make this work and those limitations are also very free because um it, it wipes out the perfect as we say in the i think episode two perfect is the enemy of the good or some variation of that and so uh you're you're scrambling just to put something together that is the the best they can be.
0: The thing I noticed in, in the later run is that there are a few shots where there are planes going over. Yes, was that deliberate? Was that a deliberate visual knob? Was it a metaphor, or was it just that's what happens if you film in California?
1: Deliberate in the finale specifically, since since at that point, yes, we the the jig is up of, of planes. Meaning in the finale, I think the opening shot is Hank watching a plane go overhead which is a which was written and it's a sound effect so we didn't we didn't get a 747 to fly over us just for Donald's off camera work but in the uh and i think later and there's a shot where the guys are driving with laura ross to go find mickey's daughter and they're heading down a highway and you see a plane mm-hmm. coming in f- to land over them that is a visual effect we managed to take that car shot and graph in a plane so it was not that we were just getting extraordinarily lucky with actual uh planes passing by
0: that's what i thought i suspected it was a metaphor but i thought well you know maybe it was just lucky but it it plays very nicely it definitely reinforces visually what's going on for anyone who's not forgotten by any means but it's it's just a reinforcement
1: yeah for a for a show that never leaves the ground i mean i guess we don't yeah (laughs) the closest we get to a plane is when uh they snatch Lindis from his uh, little prop plane. <laughs> Chinatown, you have lots of water imagery, or you keep on coming back to water, water, water. Uh, we don't do that quite as much, but towards the end, we tried to.
0: So I have episode-specific questions, as always. In Agua Caliente, we see that Ray was sort of the violent one, but Brit is also, when pushed in this last in this last half season, he can be very violent. Uh, In your mind, do you think he was he a nonviolent criminal or was there violence in his past?
1: I think he's a nonviolent criminal. I think there's something still youthful in Brit, which lends itself to impulsive violence or not thinking through. Also, I I just think anybody sleeps with your uh, the love of your life. uh, Some guys are just going to explode like that. So I don't think it was uh, ever sort of part of his character, but he just couldn't. He just couldn't let that go. I've never thrown a punch in my life, or thankfully had one thrown at me. But I think when we were doing Terriers, there was somebody who I desperately, desperately wanted to do that to. And it was only jail time that was like, it, it, it was the first time that I realized, oh, yeah, jail really is a deterrent because as much as I just want to smack the guy once,
0: <laughs>
1: I really don't want to go to jail. Uh, and I think that was, uh, th- there was a little bit of that of, of kind of, Getting that out of my system and and telling me, yeah, yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to go to jail. So that, uh, at least from my memory, that was the uh, the impetus for that.
0: Michael Raymond James mentioned that he always thought Brett Brett had sort of a rougher past than Hank. Did you have any notions for his youth and backstory, that kind of thing, or was one of those things that didn't come up?
1: I think we talked a little bit about because in in television, especially as you go on, there always becomes the question of like, well, do we have a, an episode where we? Get to see Ritz's parents, and if that was the case, is it a mother? Is it a mother story or a father story? Something that had we, had we gone forth uh, into later seasons, we may have dealt with. So I think we kind of talked a little bit of, uh, vaguely about that, but again, sort of keeping our options open in case <laughs> a certain actress was available and not a certain actor. And now it's a mother story. We wanted to stay nimble on that. So, but but I think the assumption was that. Brit had had it rougher, probably some sort of single parent working class upbringing where Hank and Steph probably had something a little bit more stable and slightly intellectual, but with its own bag of crazy involved.
0: Tom Feaster, who uh, recorded up with me, he's a comic book artist who, by the way, if you ever do decide to do a Terriers comic, he would. Desperately love to draw it. Not an
1: impossibility.
0: possibility. He mentioned, uh, obviously, Gustafson needed a new partner, but what was sort of the thought process in developing Reynolds? Like, what was what was the character about? I know there's a story behind how Reynolds, how the actor, became the the actor, though.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of what influenced Reynolds. First of all, there's a long history in, in sort of, I would say, in detective fiction, and I'm thinking like Maltese Falcon, I'm thinking uh, Chinatown even, of sort of like the second detective who's sometimes either a little bit of the butt of the joke or who's not as close to our detective as the other guy who who maybe is the, the slightly more skeptical of our protagonist. I'm, I'm thinking now there's a, a dust up that happens between Nicholson and Perry Lopez's partner in Chinatown where they almost have a little scuffle. Some characters are born out of dramatic necessity because in a way you it's always good in a in a story to have, have a newbie, have somebody say, wait, wait, wait what are you guys doing here uh, as a, and a, a new person is allowed to ask that question or a reporter or somebody applying for a job. Whereas if you have somebody who's known the characters forever saying what's going on, it's like, why are you asking that? You're, you're just, uh, you're saying that because the audience is saying it. You're not saying it because the characters, I don't know if that makes sense either. But so Reynolds was by virtue of being slightly newish to Gustafson, a way of adding in a different layer of conflict with Hank and, also a way of sort of getting some a useful information device because uh, another trick of writing is you're you're always trying to spare your main characters from delivering exposition because it's kind of boring so it's just a in a way Reynolds is also a trick of oh here's here's going to be Mr exposition but you, then you try to keep that from being too flagrant by turning him into a serial rapist. <laughs>
0: Uh, along the lines of uh, Reynolds, that we get to Gustafson, who in episode eleven D that he had a reason to think Hank might have planted evidence on a rich guy back in, in episode one. Mm-hmm. You built like, did you have any idea why Gustafson and Hank had, had a falling out? And that it was related somehow to him doing something to a rich guy, or was that just the fates aligning?
1: We were keeping our options open, which is a very nice way of saying I hadn't a clue. I just knew that we would have to come up with something. And so, on this point, I would like to salute and kowtow to Tim Meneer, who I had not worked with before, Barriers. And when this problem came up, and I kept on sort of kicking the can down the road of, like, I don't know what to do there. And he was, he said, I'm going to do this episode. And I said, Great, figure it out. I don't know. And that episode is so – when I said before that every other episode there's a piece of this or that from somebody, uh, the only episode I would say is an exception is Sins of the Past, which is Tim Maneer 100%. And, and it's arguably my favorite episode, which bothers me because I didn't have – th- A thing to do with it but he's he is the genius behind being dealt a hand of cards and coming up with that winner so i'll uh, I'll credit him
0: i have an episode 12 questions one is that and i I understand the characters are fictional i'm not a crazy person but this question still sounds kind of ghoulish to me so forgive me but with jason dead it possibly would have seen hank and gretchen reconcile is that something that would would possibly have happened in in a theoretical season two
1: i don't think so i mean i think I think Gretchen's moving on is even beyond just Jason. The saving grace is that Jason volunteers to be a part of this, and it's his community that's getting threatened too, and he's a good guy. So it's not like Hank gets him killed. However, it's just that he does become part of the collateral damage, which is Hank, and sometimes Hank doing good. So one of the tricks of Season 2 would have been, what are we doing with Gretchen? because in a way that's that emotional story really is done. And we were beginning to kick around how to make use of her, possibly have her and unknowingly involved with a new villain, but it was a bridge we never had to cross, but I, I think they're, they're done. And actually probably two of my favorite scenes in that finale are one where she tells Hank to go go get him When she sees him. Uh, visits him in jail and, and says, whoever did this, don't let him get away with it. And then their, their final goodbye when she's selling the house. It's one of the, those things where when you make a show, you sort of fall in love with things that maybe the audience won't simply because they're per- personal to you or your memory of the moment. They shouldn't be <laughs> an audience's favorite scenes necessarily, but those two scenes always kind of resonate with me.
0: Another episode 12 uh, scene that I really liked was Laura and Katie sort of get this scene where they talk about men in their lives. And I realized that we hadn't seen the two of them interact much. And it kind of made me sad that we, we didn't get more, we didn't get to see more of that that we might've seen more of that in a season two.
1: Yeah. There's a term for this, the Bechtel test, the Bechtel test. And I think we were probably talking about that in the room that we needed a scene just with them because we hadn't really managed it all season. I mean, at that point, because Katie is so on the outs with, brit it was a useful way of keeping katie in the show by having her come see gretchen so there are some things you do sort of out of i'll say necessity but it's because it's hard to say what their relationship would have been like uh i mean we were there's some place in the show where i feel like it's a little, like, a little creaky like i i don't know if if gretchen mm-hmm. and jason would invite hank to their wedding it's a Kind of an odd thing to do, but well, it's Ocean Beach. Maybe people, people do some odd things. <laughs> um, and and inviting Britt and Katie was also like maybe a little bit of a stretch, maybe less so. But I don't think we had, had worked out quite w- what all that background was. But certainly I like having that scene there because it just gets the dudes out of it for once.
0: So the finale. Yeah. We get the sense that Cutshaw is being set up as the bad guy for season two. Had you done any thinking about where that might go?
1: Yeah, a little bit. I mean, we thought about that he wouldn't be necessarily the first villain of season two, or he'd be somebody who might always kind of be out there. And it also depended a lot on Neil McDonough's schedule. Neil Neil is a good friend of mine for now, oh boy, 20 years uh, coming up, because we did this movie, Ravenous, together back in... So we met in January 1998, I think. And he very graciously on short notice not only agreed to do this one day of work because we really needed, he's going to be the, the Noah cross of the whole show, the, the ultimate villain. So we needed somebody who was not a, a day player, but somebody who, as soon as he shows up on camera, you know, Oh, that's, that's the guy. Yeah. He was about to go off to England to do captain America, the first one. And he had grown this ridiculous mustache sideburns <laughs> for that role And, and so when I got him to say yes to the part, he sent me a picture of what he looked like. And I said, I gotta, you gotta shave it. I can't, I can't justify this character looking like that. And then we spent a day, or cause he showed up in the morning to shoot that scene in the afternoon and the makeup trailer, he just, he kept on shaving little pieces of it down. And so at some point he was just like, he looked like it was a cowboy mustache. There were no sideburns, but I I can't, this guy is not Sam Elliott. (laughs) He got a – and finally – I think uh, he he shaved it to a Hitler mustache and said, how's this? I said, all right, let's go with that, and then he he shaved (laughs) it all. So not only was Neil a good friend for showing up on short notice and for shaving, but then I thought he did a ridiculously good job of – very subtly conveying this guy very clearly in less than five minutes of screen time, I think. Yeah. So I really enjoy that scene on that balcony. And the, um, the other crazy thing about it was that I think a day or two days before we shot that on the 35th floor on that, on that balcony, there had been a pretty sizable earthquake down near San Diego, which we'd all felt. So it was nobody's idea of a picnic to go shoot, at, at a great height on an overhand.
0: <laughs> yeah, the tension in, in that in that scene is very real and it may be that there was a little more tension going on than I knew about. Yeah. Uh, Neil McDonough, I, I, I love the character he played in Captain America and I can't believe he actually grew that mustache and I can't believe he shaved it off to Flint Terriers. It's amazing.
1: And then grew it back. <laughs>
0: that's that's amazing. <laughs> that makes me happier than you can possibly know.
1: That episode of Boomtown where he blacks out yeah. drunk and then wakes up and he thinks he may have killed someone is uh is it just an awesome awesome episode of tv and if you've uh, if you've never seen uh ravenous you can see him nearly in the buff in a freezing cold river that's <laughs> that's how i knew him first is the guy who just who so wanted to <laughs> get into a literally a frozen river in, in the nude just to do a one this one shot of uh to show what a badass he was
0: Oh, he's amazing! I'll follow him anywhere, so I'm always happy to see him turn up. So that was a, that was a, a treat. So, given that everyone has pointed out to me how much Terriers is your voice, I feel like you may be the best person to answer this question. Six years later, where do you think our leads are? Uh, do you ever think about it? I mean, do you ever do you ever sort of just you know, flight of fan? I know all us Terriers fans do, but does it ever cross your mind like where might the where might Hank and Britt be?
1: Well, when we started thinking about a possible season two, I know we had. A couple thoughts of where we would pick up uh, Brit in prison. A couple things I've said in, in interviews with Stephen One was a, a scene where Brit's in prison and Katie comes to him with the um, DNA results of her. You know, she's now like six months pregnant, and she leaves him with. She visits Brit and then leaves the DNA uh, DNA results with him unopened. Mm-hmm. She hasn't looked, and she said it can. It's your choice, and if you want, when you get out, you want to be a the father's child. Then we can talk. But you can either find out if you are or not. I'm not going to look. I'm going to love this child either way. And then we have this little scene where where Britt is out in the yard later, and he's got the envelope beside him, and he can't. He he just can't decide whether to open or not. And then we uh, then he starts to open it, and we go to a wide shot as he reads it, and then. Th- Thrusts his arms up into the air like like Rocky like yes it's his kid that's that's the only scene we had for him and then we started kicking around because now Hank is homeless again or has no house we started thinking about him being a like a a hotel detective like uh, he can stay for free not not a nice hotel like in uh, Asunder but some ocean beach kind of uh, rat trap and and where that could lead. And I, I think for season two, we were sort of talking about maybe sending them on some adventure that was, I don't want to say treasure of Sierra Madre, but something that was maybe a little bit more long form than, than, and not so much interrupted by case of the week that could even result in them being like Butch and Sundance. Like they have to go to Bolivia at the end because they, they're, it's no longer safe for them in in country. I mean, there were a lot of things that were on the table when we've talked about doing recently about doing a, like a movie, a standalone movie of them, there is an idea I had, but I'm gonna keep it in my back pocket and, and just in case it comes together. But I think I told Seppenwall or somebody, which is uh, where are they now? I, I said they're happy. They may not know it, but they are. So I, I like to I like to think of them in. Um, uh, I like to think Britt and Katie are together, raising that kid. It, it's hard for me to believe that Hank isn't alone or li- like living alone. I don't think there's a, an easy way for him to sort of be tranquil, but I still think he's sober.
0: So I have to ask, is there any chance we'll ever see something like Veronica Mars has been doing novels. Uh, is there any chance of doing comics? I know there's not a great deal of money in that kind of thing. Perhaps I want to play performed at a space. I'm sitting up here in my house in Austin.
1: <laughs> we were talking for a second. We thought about doing like a sitcom of with Michael and Donald. Playing themselves, living together in Ocean Beach, and they've got to go and do this uh, detective show during the day, and at night they actually like come up on cases where they have to, as the actors have to go and uh, do the things just to basically keep that chemistry alive, but not have to pay Fox any royalties for it because they're actually not playing <laughs> playing the characters that Fox owns which is a problem which is not that Fox has rejected any pleas for us to do anything. It's just sort of like it's it's I suppose legally I don't have possession of this stuff. I've not thought about doing a comic book, which I think is a terrific idea. I don't know we just it is a relationship. there are a lot of there are a lot of shows I've worked on, people I had a great time with who we never work together. that's fine. but Mikey and Donal and Sean and Tim and I and a number of others like keep on saying man. Like it's six years later, and we're still in that. Oh, if we could just do it a little bit more, like we we just hit hit our groove. And I've never had that experience, and I don't think the other guys have either. So it's it's not something that's out of our system. So I hope I hope it comes up, and I hope it's the bummer about doing a, a comic book or a novel would be it's not with them, and and that's right. Really, a majority of the fun was it was a great great gang.
0: So final question is uh yeah uh terriers fans like myself we're fans of, of your stuff and beyond oceans 11 matchstick men uh i know you directed an episode of mad dogs where can we look for more of your stuff either now or or hopefully in the future
1: i ask myself that question every day uh <laughs> there are things in the works there's nothing that i can say oh tune in tune in this fall uh if you want to see some of my acting, Billy. Wolf of Wall Street is on Netflix. You can see me in that yacht with Kyle Chandler and Leo DiCaprio, not saying a word about how lousy an actor I am. (laughs) Usually if if anyone asks me what I do for a living or asks me what they should watch of mine, I just say, please watch 11 hours of this television show. It's, uh, uh, and if not that watch a 10 minute commercial that I made, I'll plug this. There's a 10 minute uh, commercial called the key to Reserva, which, um, I sort of, Conceived with Martin Scorsese, I wrote, he directed, and it's for a Spanish sparkling wine called Cava Frejene. But the ad is on, I think it's on Vimeo, it's probably the best quality. And it's a sort of a salute to Hitchcock using the product, this this uh, sparkling wine as the MacGuffin. And this this predates Terriers. It was done in 2007. So uh, until, until something new comes along, people back to that
0: i haven't seen it so that's that's something new for me which is all i wanted
1: <laughs> if you're a hip fan I, I i hope you'll like it and um i'm i have a soft real soft spot for ravenous so if people haven't seen ravenous uh, they they might dig that it's a very peculiar piece but take a look
0: well ted i want to thank you again for doing this interview i want to thank you again for creating my favorite show of all time and and for being so helpful I, people don't necessarily know but all of the reason this has been so successful, the reason I was able to talk to Donald Logue and Michael Raymond James and Sean Ryan and Tim Minear and everybody I talked to is that you have been so helpful in reaching out to people using your con, content sort to of make this tribute to the show, and I, I very much appreciate that.
1: Well, I appreciate your doing this. I am more proud of this show than anything else I've done, and it means a lot that you've uh, dedicated so much of your time to preserving its memory and actually broadening my appreciation for it in some ways and that you've uh, in your podcast have pointed out things that either I had forgotten or never sort of really truly saw or appreciated about, about the show. So I've probably enjoyed listening to your podcast <laughs> than anyone else. Uh, it's really special. So thank you.
0: Beach Cop Detectives is an independently run podcast co-produced by Randy Lander and Grant Davis from the TV Dudes and part of the Permanent Record Network. Music for this series includes the surf music tracks Happy and Whimsical by Paul Tyane. To hear more of his work, go to soundcloud.com slash Artwork for the show is by Nate Bliss. You can find him at n8bliss-art.tumblr.com You can like us on Facebook at Beach Cop Detectives and on Twitter at Beach Cop Podcast. You can hear weekly TV commentary by Randy and Grant at thetvdudes.com Thanks for listening.